Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sibel Kaler, and you're listening to Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The intro song was If I Had a Dime by David Ryan Harris. I've been off air for the past 10 weeks, and now that I'm coming back, it marks over a year that I've been on air. Office Hours started in January 2020. So thank you all for listening. For the one-year anniversary episode of this show, I thought, what better topic than the history of broadcasting itself? So my guest today is the amazing Dr. Allison Perlman, a professor of film and media studies and history at UCI, here to talk about her research on the history of American television and how it has both reflected and impacted American social movements and politics throughout the decades. Thank you so much for being here. So your book, Public Interests, Media Advocacy and Struggles Over U.S. Television, talks about how American television has long been a battleground for influencing political viewpoints. How did these tensions start to emerge in the early days of television, back when, you know, the sitcoms are developing and we're still so wowed by being able to watch something in your home? Yeah, so there are a few answers to that question where, you know, television emerges as a mass consumer object really after World War II, you know, so it's technically feasible before the war, but most people are not purchasing televisions or it's not becoming integrated into people's daily rhythms until after World War II and especially into the 1950s. And um, so TV is emerging at the same time where African-Americans who have just returned from World War II, who were fighting in what was known as a double V victory uh, fight, were fighting fascism abroad and then fighting racism at home, um, were very primed to look at how cultural objects may or may not be impeding the fight for racial justice. You know, so this had been a fight in radio, it had been a fight in motion pictures, and pretty quickly, uh, television as this new medium, as the future of the nation, you know, as this mass medium that is going to be such an important site of shared culture, became an object of real interest for civil rights organizations like the NAACP. So um, I have found as early as 1948, uh, the NAACP monitoring what's happening on NBC or CBS and uh, trying to communicate with network executives in particular about what they see to be derogatory representational practices of African-Americans. And the real anxiety was that these representational practices would foment or reinforce derogatory understandings of African-Americans and then compromise their fight for racial justice. Um, This culminates in the early 1950s where the NAACP engages in a fairly widespread boycott of a TV show called Amos and Andy. Um, Amos and Andy had been an incredibly popular radio show. Um, It focused on two African-American characters, later joined by a third. Um, And the voices of those characters on radio were performed by white men who were engaging in this kind of audio form of minstrelsy. And when the show moves to television, CBS hires black performers to be in the show But for the NAACP, um, the show seemed like it was uh, mocking the middle-class aspirations of African-Americans. The characters were speaking in 
a manner that to members of um, the organization seemed to suggest that they were not especially well educated. A lot of the humor of the show comes from the fact that um, Andy and the Kingfish are always trying to like get away with something or do things that are a little bit outside of proprietary norms or even um, what is legal. And so the NAACP was very panicked about the television series. Um, they ostensibly were also boycotting another TV program called Beulah. Uh, Beulah was also had been a, a radio program and it focused on an African-American housekeeper uh, who worked for a white family. And Beulah as a character was also seen to reinforce uh, sort of stereotypical notions of African-American women. Um, interestingly, the campaign focused much more on Amos and Andy than Beulah and really underscored that what was so stressful for the NAACP was what they saw as the denigration of a black middle class, whereas there was less heightened anxiety about uh, the representation of a working class woman. So that this happens in the early years of television. Um, the other story, and I'll just talk about it really quickly, is um, one of the things that we also start to see in the early years of television is anxiety from some people about television's commercialism. You know, so television and its structure is in some ways imported from radio. So the major radio networks become the major television networks. The regulatory structure for radio gets mapped onto television. And by the 1940s, radio is predominantly a commercial medium and it is dominated by national networks. And there were some people, especially educators and social reformers and members of the labor movement who thought commercial broadcasting was not enabling this really powerful medium to be able to serve all the civic, social, and political functions that it could. You know, that uh, the commercial networks and commercial stations were interesting and interested in selling audiences to advertisers, and they were less interested in education. Uh, they were less interested in informational programming. There were also fears that because of the commercial structure of broadcasting, uh, commercial, the programming was going to reinforce ideas or values that were sympathetic to business interests or the corporate sector and be hostile to the interests of workers or labor. And so there was a movement in the late 40s and into the 1950s to try to make sure that this new medium of television would have a space for non-commercial broadcasters, you know, so to, to have, not to overturn commercial broadcasting, but to create a space for alternative ways of imagining what television could be. Right. And so what are the ways that some of those tensions, obviously commercialism and education and, you know, this push for more diverse representation, how has that evolved today and throughout the 20th century? Yeah, so so I think that whilst there, there's both continuity and change, I think we can see. So on the question of commercialism, there is obviously and importantly a public broadcasting sector, you know, in existence in the U.S. I mean, NPR has really been thriving actually in the in the recent past. Public television a little bit less so, and much of the solidity of the public broadcasting sector comes about in the 1960s when Congress passes and President, President Johnson signs the Public Broadcasting Act in 1967, which provides sustained federal support for non-commercial broadcasting. 
And so this is, and for many people, this enormous victory. You know, now there's a strong financial footing for a non-commercial alternative to commercial television. One of the things, though, that we see, and, and it starts to happen pretty early, is that even federal support is insufficient. And local stations and PBS and NPR are always really in need of more financial support to create the programs that they want, to keep their stations on the air. And so they increasingly look to viewer donations or listener donations and to forms of underwriting. And by the early 1980s, they are allowed legally to engage in what's known as enhanced underwriting, which essentially means that they can accept money from corporations. They can announce that the corporation has given them money. They can read what I might think of as ad copy about the corporation that donated the money. The one thing they're not allowed to do is say, buy this product or don't buy that product. And so while it's a, it's a nonprofit, uh, non-commercial sector, it's one that is increasingly reliant on corporate underwriting and is increasingly reliant on viewer donations. And so part of the evolution of public media in the US is that it's, it was supposed to be liberated from the pressures that commercial broadcasters faced uh, as for-profit corporations. But in practice, what's happened is public media is so reliant on the donations of a particular class of people, and they're so reliant on the underwriting functions of a particular sector of the economy, that rather than providing this alternative that's, that's addressing the diversity of the public, it's really having to figure out strategies to keep this financial system in place uh, so that it can continue to operate. So it's a, it is a vital public resource, but it's one that's somewhat compromised, <laughs> even though it's been coexisting with commercial media. In terms of representational practices, they certainly have changed over time, although I don't think that we're at a point where we can be entirely celebratory about what we see on screen and its relationship to the real diversity of publics living across the United States. But, you know, and I think that's especially true, not just in terms of who we're seeing in front of the camera, but who we're seeing behind the camera. So there's still a tremendous amount of labor to be done to diversify who works in producing television, you know, who, who has decision-making power in addition to thinking about who's appearing in front of the camera as well. So there's hu huge work to be done, but if we compare and contrast where we are now to where we were, say, like in 1952, we can see that there has been some uh, expansion of who's considered to be an appropriate person to be figured within an American primetime television program. Right. And, you know, that's a really interesting point considering just, you know, how much of the film industry is so overwhelmingly white and how difficult it is, even if you are given a grant to make a film as an independent filmmaker. So I think that definitely shows we still do have quite a ways to go for diversity behind the camera. And going back to the historical side of things, obviously television, when we think of early television, we think of kind of the defining moments of the 50s. Do you believe that television had a large contribution to those iconic social movements as we go into the 60s? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I do think so. And I think its results were uneven. So one of the things that we do know, for example, about a number of civil rights leaders, especially like Dr. King, 
is that he really understood the power of television and really understood television as part of his arsenal in making the case for African-American civil rights. So a number of the campaigns that were done, especially in the Southern United States, were designed specifically to be televisual, you know, to potentially illicit modes of violence against nonviolent protesters to make visible to audiences across the country the actual violence that was part and parcel of why people were fighting so strenuously for civil rights protections and for racial equality. And so there are a number of stories that point to how critical television was to enabling some of the legislation of the early 1960s to further this goal of racial justice. Probably the most famous anecdote is in 1965, when civil rights activists were planning on marching from uh, Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, as part of a broader campaign to try to secure voting rights for African-Americans, but also specifically in response to the murder of a young man in Marion, Alabama that week by a white mob who was intent on denying African-Americans the right to register to vote. Um, civil rights protesters are peace, peacefully marching for Congressman John Lewis, who at the time was a leader in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is, is in the front with Hosea Williams. The Alabama National Guard greets them on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, tells them to return. When they don't, these nonviolent protesters are beaten, they're gassed, they're brutalized, and there are network television cameras filming the whole thing. ABC famously that night was showing a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg, which is a fictional film about trying Nazi war criminals. And they break the film to show footage of what happened in Selma. And so there's this remarkable juxtaposition between this film examining violence performed in the name of the state against citizens of a nation, you know, that we fought in World War II. And then you're looking at images of agents of the state brutalizing people in the United States. And, and it created such a sense of outrage that many people feel it was really instrumental in creating popular support for the passage of the Voting Rights Act that year. And so television had this tremendous power to call on the moral conscience of the nation. There were limits to that. You know, so part of the st strategy of a lot of the civil rights activists who were courting television attention was to really embrace what's known as the politics of respectability. So these were people who were dressed in nice clothes. They embraced modes of nonviolent protest. They presented themselves as people who were not looking to upset existing systems as much as to be enabled to be included, to be able to vote, to be able to eat dinner in the restaurant of your choice, to be able to use a restroom that's accessible to other people. By the end of the decade, when we start to see modes of violent unrest in cities, especially outside of the South, like in places like Detroit or Newark or Los Angeles, you know, the Watts area, uh, Harlem, and a lot of these protests, which alternately are often referred to as riots, but I think historians have persuasively redefined them as rebellions, are of poor communities who are responding to denigrated housing conditions. Police brutality is an enormous catalyst for their, their protests, uh, lack of economic opportunity and so on, uh, television covers it very differently. And so rather than um, asking audiences to identify with 
the violence of the communities that are that are protesting have experienced and to see it as a response to really unimaginable living conditions audiences are asked to fear those protesters and to see this response as an illegitimate one that needs to be quelled and stopped rather than to actually examine the root causes of why people are protesting in the first place. Television is also this really interesting medium when it comes to the feminist movement of the late 60s and 70s because journalists who had been pretty sympathetic, especially to the Southern civil rights activists, are not sympathetic to feminists at all. And so a lot of the coverage that television, and just television news in particular, provides to feminism is pretty dismissive, it's derogatory, and in some ways is reinforcing the very ideas about patriarchy that feminists are trying to upend. But one of the things that's interesting about that is the, the news coverage, which can be so dismissive, is actually really politicizing for a lot of women who might not have joined the feminist movement otherwise. You know, But then they see the way that these male anchors are discussing feminist protests and, and they get really radicalized to want to participate in the movement. Right. I was just listening to you talk about the the protests and at any point in that speech, you could be talking about this summer. How do you think that politics on TV have changed in the last couple decades? Yeah, that's that's such a great point. You know, so I think there are a lot of really crucial things that are different now than there were in the 1960s. And the capacity for people like you to record an act of police brutality and then distribute it online without going through a media company or a network is in a tremendous transformation, right? So that we know a lot of the capacity to, to see and to witness really what are modern day lynchings, you know, with people like George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or the murder of Breonna Taylor, a lot of that has been facilitated not necessarily by professional journalists going out to try to unmask this violence, but really by the courageous acts of people committed to witnessing them and to making it visible for other people. But I will say that I do think part of the television still has a role to play because it then can amplify what's happening in social media networks, you know, so that the ubiquity of the protests over the summer of 2020 against police brutality, I think was kind of this really generative relationship between new media, like social media platforms, cell phone video, that then is pushing journalists in incumbent media to cover the story as a really urgent one. The other shift that I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen it too, but it has been really striking to me, is that there is a media narrative, at least in some traditional media sources that started in the summer of 2020, that is far more attentive to structural racism rather than racism as the individual acts of bad people than I have seen in the media before. You know, so part of the civil rights narrative was acknowledging that racism was bad, but it was trying to locate racism in the bad acts of bad people who are trying to deny good people their right to live good lives. And I think one of the things that we started to see last summer especially with um, movements around defunding the police or abolishing the police or reimagining policing is this resistance to the notion that police brutality is the action of a few bad individuals who ought to be punished, but the system itself is fundamentally sound. 
And instead we've seen a larger cultural narrative that's looking at structurally what is policing, how, how does policing function, especially in communities of color, and given the um, just staggering violence of that function, how do we reimagine what policing could mean in order to make sure that everybody feels safe? And that, that was not, to my knowledge, a part of a mainstream conversation in the 1960s. Um, even though police brutality without question was a central, central concern of civil rights activists. When we tend to reflect back on that period, we tend to think about voting, we tend to think about desegregation, but especially if you go back and look at some of the video of the period and look at some of the activists of the period, police brutality is it's a longstanding, just horrific problem that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And it is definitely encouraging that these conversations have started to shift to the system itself and talking about what we could change. And speaking of not acknowledging systemic racism, you have written a lot about how Rush Limbaugh's rhetoric around race kind of depicts conservative colorblindness as the ultimate racial equality. Do you think that these ideas are still present when we're talking about race today? Yeah, I, I, I think they are, although I guess the question is, is like, who is the we, you know, that's talking about race? Yeah. Um, so I do think, you know, for example, John Roberts, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, in a decision maybe a decade ago, essentially wrote, the way to stop discriminating on race is to stop discriminating on race. And by that, he meant, let's just get rid of affirmative action because affirmative action constitutes a mode of discrimination based on race. And this has been a longstanding uh, reaction to affirmative action programs. And so I think there are people who still see racial equality as colorblindness. Um, and so the best way to move forward to a racially egalitarian society is to erase racial difference. I think now there are more people potentially who see a lot of the fallacies in that, you know, so and there are a tremendous number of fallacies. So first of all, it entirely erases long historical processes of discrimination, expropriation, exploitation, violence that don't just go away when you say everybody is equal. The colorblindness itself often has to be premised on the notion of a universal subject, which typically is a universal white subject, right? So a colorblind attitude often is an uh, invitation to say everybody can be like white people, which I think a number of people understand to not really be a racially egalitarian way of understanding how we ought to live and respect each other in a multiracial society. And so, uh, so I think that there certainly still is in parts of the, the conservative movement, this embrace of colorblindness as the best remedy for racial discrimination. But I think there are enough countervailing ideas that suggest that colorblindness is actually not the goal. You know, it's not, the goal is not to stop seeing people's racial backgrounds. The goal is to allow all people to live in dignity and respect and to be able to support themselves, support them fam their families, not live in fear of violence, to be able to thrive and to not have to conform to a particular model of uh, what it means to be a good person or a member of society. I think mean, one of the things that's really interesting is I do, like Limbaugh was somebody who would preach 
colorblindness, although a lot of his rhetoric was explicitly racist. And again, it was, I'll, I'll just say that. I mean, it was especially around African-American politicians and the way that he discussed them was explicitly racist. And I think we see, in, I don't even know if we should use the term conservative anymore to talk about particular segments of the US public, but we don't necessarily see a preaching of colorblindness. I think we're increasingly have seen and acceptance in certain sectors of an open embrace of white supremacy, right? Which is which is different than than you know conservative colorblindness. You know, and, and people could argue conservative colorblindness was premised maybe in an implicit or uninterrogated way on notions of white supremacy, but it was covert rather than explicit. And I think now we're actually we've seen um, a much more visible return to explicit gestures towards white supremacy. Um, amongst some people who may or may not identify as conservatives or as members of the political right. Absolutely. And it really is insidious. Well, yeah. And I think that there's a way that people like to take out of context Dr. King's 1963 March on Washington speech, which has a line about, you know, he, you know, hopes for a day where his children will be viewed for the content of their character, not the color of their skin. But in some ways that that, that has become a stand-in for Dr. King's philosophy on civil rights. And Dr. King was committed to economic justice. Like he understood structural racism. He opposed the war in Vietnam. He opposed American imperialism. He was not seeking conservative colorblindness, but he was acknowledging that in the 1960s, his children's chances were greatly, greatly diminished because people already slated their opportunities because of their racial background. But there, there's a... Um, that was something that Limbaugh did really um, strategically is he tried to suggest that he, his approach to race was the legacy of Dr. King. And I don't think Dr. King would have seen it that way, <laughs> you know, but, but, but his colorblindness, he, he was trying to sort of suggest that he was the proper inheritor of this uh, moment in American history. Right. And so for our last question, we're here today with an avalanche of content on streaming services, on TV, on the internet, and we have these political pundits, we have fake news, so-called, we have real fake news, fake, fake news. What's your advice to listeners on trying to be savvy media consumers and maybe try to distance themselves from all these biases we're seeing on TV? Yeah, so I think that's, I think it's a really hard media ecosystem to try to navigate. And so I guess my advice would to always be mindful of the source of information that you are being provided and to look into who or what has produced it for what purpose, asking engaged questions about who produced it, for which audience, for what purpose, is are just a set of skills that we should always be asking about everything that we consume online. And I would just encourage everyone to not distrust their community, but to approach everything that you read with a, with a certain skepticism that allows you to apply this critical lens of who's produced it, for what purpose, for which imagined audience, based on what kind of evidence, before wholly embracing what you read. Absolutely. That is great advice. And thank you so much for being here. That was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much, Sabelle, for inviting me. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Again, that was Dr. Allison Perlman, 
professor of film and media studies and history at UCI, speaking about the history of television and its impact on American social movements. Her book, Public Interests, Media Advocacy, and Struggles Over U.S. Television, is available wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. I am Sibel Kaler, and this has been Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thank you for an amazing first year of broadcasting this show. Have a great day, stay safe, and be kind to each other out there.